You guys have any embarrassing stories? I make one every single week. So on Tuesday, I went to go get a load of wood right after work, left here at four, went up to Wade Comerford's house and got loaded up. And then I was going to turn around and he has this propane tank. And it's not like a little propane tank for your barbecue. It's a giant propane tank. I ran it over in my truck. Yep. And then the heat from my truck ignited the propane and started a fire. And the fire was like 90 feet tall and it ended up burning his motorhome. I made up the fire part. I did hit the propane tank. <laughs> now you're thinking, oh, that's not so bad. Yep. Brilliant. <laughs> now, I just told that to you guys, which is small in comparison to this embarrassing story. It's in the most popular book ever printed. So we're going to look at a very embarrassing story and then see Jesus' response to it. So we're jumping in. We're in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10, verse 32. First, the death and then a distraction. And they were on the road. So if you don't know where we're at in the book of Mark, this is the last road trip of Jesus and the disciples. They're making a long one. They were way up north in Caesarea Philippi. They kind of come down. They do some circuits. They go down to Jericho, and they're going to finally make it to Jerusalem. So it's the last road trip of Jesus and his disciples. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is now the third time Jesus has told his disciples about what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. But this time he adds some information. I'm not just going there to be crucified. I'm going to be mocked, spit on, and flogged. This would be the definition of cruel and unusual punishment. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to show up in Jerusalem and they're going to mock me. And you read the account and that's what happens. The people come by and they mock him. You saved others. Why can't you save yourself? What's wrong with you? You're not what you said you were. They spit on him. You ever been spat on? What does that mean? When someone spits on you, what are they saying? So it's like, I'll put this PG, it's your dirt. I would spit on the dirt. You're no better than dirt. I'm going to spit on you. And then he's going to be flogged. A flogging was, you've seen the passion of the Christ. It was take somebody to an inch away from death's door. That's what the goal was. Get them as close to dying as you can. So for a moment, I want us to think about this because most of us have a Western theology 
of the cross. And the Western theology of the cross is this, that Jesus died on the cross, went through this for penal substitutionary atonement. You ever heard that before? Penal substitutionary atonement. It just means this, penal is penalty. He paid our penalty. How? By substituting himself for us and he atoned for our sins so that we could be made right with God, right? Penal substitutionary atonement. And that's great. Now, if that's it, if that's all that Jesus was accomplishing there, if that's all that was happening there, then I have to ask, why was he whipped? Why was he spit on? Why, why the torture aspect of this? If it's only about my penal substitutionary atonement, what's the deal with this other stuff? Why was a bag put over his head? And why did they smack him and say, hey, prophesy who hit you? Why all that other stuff? Was there a certain number of whippings that was required for my sin as well? Was there a certain number of thorns crushed into his head that was required for my sin as well, right? Like, why all this other stuff? If you step back from the story for a second and try to pan out and get the bigger context, here's what I think you discover. Jesus on the cross quotes a psalm. It's Psalm 22, verse one. That psalm says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's all kinds of ways people have taken that. Here's what I think Jesus was doing. 2,000 years ago, if a rabbi was trying to teach his disciples something, he would not quote a whole passage. He would quote the first part of the passage, forcing his disciples to go find it, read it in context, and to discover what the rabbi was trying to say. Because if you spoon food people, they often don't remember it. But if you force people to actually go and digest and to think through, they remember it. So that's how the rabbis would teach. Here's what I'm convinced Jesus was doing on the cross when he quoted Psalm 22.1. He was saying to his disciples, hey, go check out this Psalm. It'll tell you everything that's happening right here. Because if you read Psalm 22, and I'd recommend it. It describes crucifixion hundreds of years before Rome ever invented it. Exactly what happens to a person on a cross. It's unbelievable. Jesus is saying to his disciples, hey guys, I know you're all freaked out right now. But listen, this is part of the eternal plan. This is not taking us by surprise. Know this, okay? In fact, Verse eight of Psalm 22 is quoted by the high priest when Jesus is on trial. Like it's all just mixed in there. But in the middle of that Psalm, there's a couple of verses that I want you to look at. It's verses 12 and 13. It says this. Many bulls, right after the crucifixion, right in that kind of description, many bulls encompassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. All right, here's crucifixion. Jesus quotes it. And then in the middle of this, there's this bulls of Bashan and ravening lions. What is that? What's being said by this? All right, lions and bulls, huh? Okay, so here's what the Old Testament does very often. 
It'll use two big things as object lessons for much larger things. So in the Old Testament, there are two cities that are held up as polar opposites. The first city, Jerusalem. Salem means peace. It was supposed to be a city of peace, a city that was an example to all the nations of here's what happens when you follow Yahweh. Here's what happens, the Sadaqah and Mizpah, the righteousness and justice that will flow out of a culture that serves Yahweh, a light set on a hill so that other nations could see and know Yahweh. That was Jerusalem. But there's another city. It's the absolute opposite of that, Jerusalem. You know what that city is called? Babylon. And from Genesis 11, very early, from Genesis 11 all the way to Revelation 18, Babylon is held up as the antithesis of Jerusalem. It's a city of evil. It's a city that's bad. It's a city that corrupt stuff happens in it, right? So you have these parallels. Well, another parallel is the mountains. There's a mountain called Mount Sinai. It's called God's mountain, where God's law comes from it, where God's power is seen, a good mountain, but there's another mountain that's the absolute opposite of that, like Babylon. It's called Mount Bashan. And it's at Mount Bashan that Baal, the bad guy, rules from. Psalm 68 says, it's from that mountain that the king of Og, a descendant of the Rephaim, brings his disaster. Modernizing it, it'd be like this. The son, the great, 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 great grandson of Genghis Khan is ruling from Baghdad and he's in charge of ISIS. We'd be like, that doesn't sound like a good place to go. That's Mount Bashan. So when Bashan is mentioned here, is telling us something about evil, right? Bashan is up in the area near Caesarea Philippi. Remember that in Mark chapter eight? What was in Caesarea Philippi? A temple to Pan, the goat god. A guy that was half goat from his legs down and man above, a really, really evil place. A place where there's the gates of hell, and Jesus says, it's in the worst place, Caesarea Philippi, Temple of Pan, gates of hell that I'm gonna build my church. It's the same region. It's the same region that Dan, the tribe of Dan, begins to worship the golden calf and bring that in. It's a baby bull, if you would, right? So all that, to put it simply, is this. Bashan is an area of real evil. And so when the bulls of Bashan are mentioned in Psalm 22, gaping and leering at Jesus, it's telling us that it's just not physical here. There's a massive spiritual component to what is happening to Jesus in Jerusalem. That is bigger than just nails in flesh. There's actually a battle that's happening inside of the cosmic realm. And Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 2, 8. He says, on the cross, the dark powers, the demonic powers, they thought they won. They thought they got it, right? And Israel knew about bad stuff, knew about goat gods. I have a verse, Leviticus 17, 7, where it says, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons, Pan, that temple, that evil system, right? They knew about that. They had that in their literature. They had been worshiping the same thing. So there's a, this giant spiritual component to the cross that I think sometimes Western, the Western world ignores, but we shouldn't. 
because the theology of the gaping and leering bulls is this. The enemy thought it was winning, but what was actually happening to them? Judo theology. It's Genesis 3.15. Yeah, the serpent's gonna bruise Jesus' heel, bite him, put venom in him, but what is Jesus gonna do to that chaos monster? Crush his head. That's what's happening on the cross. There's this incredible, incredible spiritual battle. So Jesus says this to his disciples. I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and I'm gonna be treated like a prisoner of war, which he actually is in the cosmic realm. Brilliant. Now back to our story. So you've been with Jesus for three and a half years. You believe he's Messiah. You believe he's the son of God. You believe this about him. He begins to tell you, hey, down in Jerusalem, I'm gonna be tortured and slaughtered and nailed to a cross. What would be the right response to your rabbi in that moment? Um, sir, can we not go to Jerusalem? Hey, can we go north instead? Hey, can we pray? Hey, can I help you? Hey, can I do anything about this? What would be the absolute wrong thing to do? Well, Jesus, if you're gonna die, can I be vice president? Wouldn't that be the worst thing to do? Guess what they do? You guessed it. Check this out. Verse 36, 35, excuse me. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Time out. What does that sound like? That sounds like my eight-year-old who's like, dad, I'm gonna ask you something, but you have to say yes. Your kids ever do that to you? What is it, Myron? I wanna borrow $1,000, your car, a chainsaw, and a rifle. And you have to say yes. <laughs> it's like that. You're just like, oh my goodness. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant to us to sit, one at your right hand, vice president, and one at your left, speaker of the house, in your glory. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He had just told them what that baptism looks like. You know what you're asking, guys. What do they say? Verse 39. They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I just call this the ridiculous response. It's unbelievable. It's cringy, right? You have the request. It's so selfish. It's so tone deaf. After Jesus has just said, I'm going to go get slaughtered in Jerusalem. Hey, can I be your VP? Like, you're just like, are you kidding? And you can spend time on that. I don't. I want to look at Jesus's response. Because the first thing that Jesus says to them is this. Dude, you guys are clueless. You are clueless what you're asking for. I just told you I'm going to be tortured. You're clueless. You don't know what you're asking for. You ever done something like that? So I remember a number of years ago, I climbed Mount Shasta, 10,400 feet. And when I got up there, I'd been up like at that point, 26 hours. I got to the top. I, I summoned it with three other guys. When I got to the top, like I just emotionally overwhelmed. I just started crying. I don't know why. I just started crying, right? So we're walking down now. We're coming down. We're meeting some people that were on the trip with us. And, and there's, if you guys make it, yeah, we made it. And one group was like, how was it? And I just said, I don't know, man. I just started crying. And so Jason folks, that was like, so did I, but I wasn't going to tell anyone, man. <laughs> right? So I got down from that. And then I started thinking, hey, I want to climb Mount Everest. Shasta, now I want Everest. So I talked to a buddy of mine and he He's just hiked to the base camp. The base camp is at 18,000 feet. Like, that's where you start. It's, you got 11,000 plus feet to go, 18,000 feet. And this dude is a stud. He is a specimen. And I'm like, hey, man, I want to hike Everest. And he's like, you're clueless, man. He goes, I made it to the base camp. He goes, and I'm telling you this. He goes, every night I go to sleep, and I'm, this is, might be too much information for you, but this is what he said. He said, I would lose all bowel control. Yeah. He's like, you're clueless. I'm like, hmm, maybe I'll rethink that. <laughs> this is Jesus. You guys are clueless. You don't know what you're asking for. What are they saying? We got it, man. So what does Jesus say? Okay, you can have it. You can have it. And they get it. James, Acts chapter 12, is the church's first martyr. You want to drink? Okay, you can drink it. John, boiled alive in oil. Should have killed him, doesn't. So what do they do with him? Exile him to an island called Patmos. Brutal. Be careful what you demand from God because he just might give it to you. I'm getting older and older and I'm learning more and more. I don't actually know what I want. And probably the best prayer I can ever pray is not my will be done but thy will be done. James 3, I need wisdom from above because I'm going to make a mistake. I'm going to ask for the wrong things. Now my will be done, but thy will be done. So they're clueless and they get it, right? Then the disciples, the other 10 are like, what did you guys just ask for? They get ticked, right? And this merry little band of disciples has a fracture in it. Have you noticed that when we scheme, when we try to manipulate, when we try to get an advantage in a situation, how it almost always divides up good friendships? Relationships these guys are gonna need in the coming future, that's gonna get real bad. They screw it all up. Things are awkward now. Things are hard now. Things are not right. They're isolated. 
It's 10 against two. And they still have a bunch of days left on this camping trip. So I can just imagine when dinner's served, there's 10 plates. And the other, you guys get your own food, man. I ain't cooking for you, vice president. Go get your own, right? It's all messed up. That happens. So Jesus takes this moment and he says, guys, here's the solution. Here's the solution. And he gives his mission statement. Every one of us should have this underlined. This is the mission statement of King Jesus. This is what he says, verse 44. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Circle that. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's the solution to scheming and manipulation? What's the solution to things that divide relationships? What's the solution? You're a slave. That's it. Be a slave. This is Jesus's ministry. This is Jesus's mission statement. This is what he did, right? Ambition isn't bad. Jesus is just saying, redirect it. Redirect it like a slave. Be a slave of all. The older I get, the more I see the wisdom of this little thing right here. If I want shalom, if I want happiness, if I want joy, be a slave. It comes from that. So I started just sketching out, like, what does it mean to be a slave? What does that look like? And I hit eight real quick. And I knew I'm not, I'm not gonna be able to teach eight of these. So I got three. Three, and then you're free to go watch the Super Bowl. Okay, here they are. And I'm telling you, this is Jesus's mission statement. This is how he lived his life. This is why he was so full of joy. Why he lived so full, because he lived like a slave. And here's a slave. Number one, slaves have no reciprocation. When a slave does his thing, when a slave lives, whatever, a slave doesn't expect someone to help him back. They just do it, why? Because they're a slave, it's what slaves do. They're not trying to manipulate by their actions a response from other people because they're a slave and that's what they do, period. I think we fail on this a lot. I'll give you one example. It's giving. I think often we don't actually give to people. We actually use our gifts to try to buy something from someone else. We want reciprocation. We want something back. You'll know you've given like that if you make this statement. I'm never gonna give to him or her again because they fill in the blank. Okay, you didn't give it. You tried to rent something, you tried to buy something. They weren't grateful enough. Okay, you wanted gratitude. They didn't spend it the way that I wanted. You wanted to control them. Right? You're all, we, like, we almost always give in a way that's not giving. Jesus says, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give without any regrets. You just give. And it's hard. I learned this lesson when I was 17. I worked at Fred Meyer, headed to work one day, not rich. I was making $3.35 an hour. I had $5 to my name. It was in my back pocket. It was for dinner on my break during my eight-hour shift at Fred Meyer. I'm driving along 7th Street, and it's 1989. I had never seen this before in Grants Pass. First time I'd ever seen it. 
on the corner of 7th and G Street, right there in front of Safeway, was a man holding a sign and it said, hungry, need food. I had never seen that before in Grants Pass. He had with him these two little grubby children. And I remember as I drove by, I was like, he's hungry. Oh, I need to help him. So I pulled around in my little Volkswagen Rabbit, parked, went walking over to him, pulled out my last $5 and like an awkward 17 year old tried to have a conversation with him. I'm like, hey man, I saw your sign. I know you're hungry and here's $5, you know. And I just thought we had a connection. God bless you. I got this, this is gonna be his big break. He'll get some food. He'll give his kids a bath. It's gonna be awesome, right? I got on my Volkswagen Rabbit. I have never been happier. I mean, I was on cloud nine, like, wow, how awesome. I gave and wow, this is gonna be so good. Just full of joy. Finished my errands, driving out to Fred Meyer on F Street. As I'm driving, up pulls this giant blue car. I look over, it's the guy I'd given five bucks to. He's driving a car. I'm like, he has a car? Dang, right? Better car than mine. Sitting next to him is a gal. In the backseat is two more adults. The two grubby kids were shoved up in that little shelf that those little bomba cars have, right? They're back there. And he kind of drove by me. And as he drove by me on the back windshield, it said, Grateful Dead. 219 concerts and counting. Headed to Eugene. I was so mad. I was like, I will show you Grateful Dead. I floored my Volkswagen and it didn't move. And they just drifted off into the world, right? <laughs> the rest of that evening, I was ticked. When lunch came, my dinner break came and I had no money, I was even more angry. I was hangry. Why? Because he didn't use the money I, like I wanted him to use that money. You want to be miserable? You want to be miserable? Given that way. If I hadn't seen him, man, I would have had joy all day. The joy was taken away when I tried to make sure he reciprocated. Slaves don't worry about reciprocation. Slaves do this. Slaves say, I am going to work heartily as unto the Lord. That what I'm doing is not for this person or this situation. What I'm doing is because God called me to do this and I'm doing it to him, and I'm not expecting them to respond in a certain way because I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it heartily as unto the Lord. Man, you are so free. When you do it that way, you hear whispered into your head, Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful. It says servant, but it's the same word for slave. Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of the master. This is the route to joy. I'm not trying to manipulate. I'm not trying to get you to reciprocate. I'm doing this because God's called me to do it. And I'm doing it to him. And you can respond however you want. Man, they're free. Number one, no reciprocation. Number two, no control. Slaves don't control things. Do you know that? When a slave wakes up in the morning, he has no control. A slave says, there's only one thing I can control today, and that is me. If you're honest, it's the same today. It's the same right now. You can control you and that's it. I think it's a healthy exercise every once in a while to take out a chunk of paper and to just list out the things that you cannot control. You can't control the weather. Do you know that? Pretty nice out there. Pretty brilliant. 
And yet, here's what's happened to me multiple times in the last couple of weeks. I'll be like, man, what a great day. And what's the person say to me? Yeah, but we need rain. Okay, are you gonna control that? You can either complain about rain or enjoy the sun. I personally am gonna enjoy the sun because you're nuts. You can't make it rain. Like, I can't control the weather, so I'm not gonna complain about it. I'm just gonna enjoy the sun. That's what I'm gonna do. You can't control your neighbors. As much as you would like to, you cannot control your neighbors. Just check it off the list. You cannot control that chatty person who is talking to the clerk in the line forever and pulls out a checkbook to write a check. In 2022, what is wrong with you? Debit card person, you can't control them. You cannot control the car in front of you. Okay? I know they're morons. I'm behind them too. You can't control them. Give it up. Sometime, just list it out. Because all those things, when you allow them to get into your head, man, they totally rob you of your joy. Slaves know something. I can't control it. And because of that, they're set free. You know how much time and energy you have for joy and life if you're not trying to control your little fiefdom. If you're just like, well, I'm just a slave, so it doesn't matter. I'm not going to control that. So I'll give you one example where I think it causes problems. Marriage. I will often talk to people that they're, they're having marriage problems. And usually when they're talking to me, they're at what I call the rock star stage, where they're a cover page of the inquirer now, like, oh man. And what happens is I'll talk to one or the other, the husband or the wife. And often it's this, well, my husband did this and my husband did that and my husband, right? It's a bunch of like, they are the problem. I always tell people, listen, you can't control him. You can't control her. You can control one thing and it stares at you in the mirror in the morning. That's it. And the quicker you get over this thing, the quicker you can start doing something about it. You can control you and that is it. You can only control your response. And even if you have a really, really good marriage, don't you know that there's some stuff in your marriage? Like I have this quote and I wrote it down, it was so good. It's by Dr. Dan Wiles. This is what he says. He says, when choosing a long-term partner, you will, in don't read it too fast because you ruin it for me. <laughs> when choosing a long-term partner, you will inevitably be choosing a particular set of unsolvable problems. How good is that? I went, oh, that is money. Golly. Ladies, you won't change him. He will dress like his dad. It's not that bad. <laughs> so this led Dr. John Gottman, who is like the marriage guru of America. He said, because of this, there's just, un listen, you're two different people. You're not going to control each other. Because of this, he said, if you will learn to set your expectations correctly, what you think are these unsolvable obstacles instead become speed bumps that you go right over. It's simple. I'll make it even simpler. You're a slave. You can't control them. How much energy will you save? How much time will you trade? Like, you stop worrying, right? You're not in control. 
It's like this man that had all these problems and just, just a worry wart, control freak guy. And then all of a sudden his friends started to notice he changed. And they're like, what happened? They're like, I'm seeing this therapist and he's helped me. Like, what does he do? Well, this therapist just told me, hey, give me all your problems. Let me worry about all your problems. So he goes, that's what I do now. I'm like, well, he must be really expensive. Oh, he is. He's a million dollars a month. How are you going to pay for him? The guy said, well, that's his problem. <laughs> Listen, I'm telling you, Jesus is our burden bearer. You can just say it's his problem. I want this person to respond this way. I want this person to act this way. I want my spouse to do this. Okay, you're not going to control them. But guess what? Jesus can. And you can, the Bible says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Jesus, I know you care more about my eternal character than my temporary comfort. So use this person, use this situation to make me what I'm supposed to be. And if you choose, use me as a means of grace in that person's life to get your will done in their life. Man, that's the healthiest position because slaves don't control anything. And lastly and finally, slaves have no entitlement. Slaves are entitled to anything. They're a slave, right? And because of that, they get joy. We have an entitlement culture in America now that all of us expect that we should live like Jeff Bezos. And anything less than that is intolerable. It's insane to me. So when I was thinking this through, I remembered this story that I've never forgotten. My kids have never forgotten it. It's 2009, we were in India. We were in the backwoods, remote part of India where they live like they've lived for thousands of years. Like these huts that are covered in dung and mud with thatch roofs and no running water, no electricity. We're back in one of these villages and we're sharing Jesus with this village. And after we shared Jesus with this village, the principal had brought out all the kids and there's like 70 kids there. And I had bought a soccer ball at Walmart for 12 bucks. And we were giving the soccer ball to the students. So after we share, I pull up the soccer ball and all the kids just went, oh. And so I give it to the principal and then the principal then explains to the 70 children, hey, these guys are giving you guys this soccer ball. And he tosses it to the tallest kid out there in this group of 70. And the kid catches it. And the entire group of 70 kids started to scream and jump and yell like a beauty pageant winner. And my kids are like, oh. What? Right? If you gave a soccer ball to a group of kids in America and made 70 of them share it, what would happen? There'd be a riot and they'd go to Walmart and take 70 more. That's what would happen in America. Because we have this entitlement thing. I know this. I don't buy one soccer ball for my two boys. Why not? Because they're going to fight over it. It's easier to buy two balls and just be like, I'm done with it. Because we have this thing in America. We're entitled to a Jeff Bezos life. And it makes us miserable. Those kids had so much joy because they had 170th of a soccer ball. Oh, that we might learn this. That we're just slaves. Because when you learn that, what happens is you have gratitude for whatever God gives you. The sun's shining today. I'm so thankful. I have a bed I'm a slave with a bed. How cool is this? I'm a slave with a car. I know it's a Datsun and they don't make them anymore, but it's a Datsun and it's a car. Wow. 
right? You just become overwhelmed with gratitude. I had three meals today. Wow. I had a birthday party today. Wow. I got gifts. Wow. I got Briar's natural vanilla ice cream. Oh, heaven. When you live a life that's not full of entitlement, you start looking around with thanksgiving and gratitude at all the gifts that Jesus has given to you, and you are overwhelmed with joy. Listen, Jesus takes this opportunity where these guys are conniving and trying to work it for their advantage, and he says, life's not lived that way. It's the flip opposite. You want joy? You want shalom? You want healed relationships? Act like a slave. The way the world has rigged things robs you of what you actually want. This is the way it works. It's why every Sunday we come and we take communion because we're reminded Jesus just didn't tell us to do this. Jesus lived this. This is the Jesus life. He gives his life as a ransom for many. He comes not as a Lord over people, but comes as a slave to serve us. And we remember it saying, Jesus, we want to live that same kind of life, that same brilliance, that same way. And so Jesus today, as we come to the table, we are fighting ourselves, our culture. We're fighting the enemy who came to you and said, you shouldn't be hungry, you deserve more. And we know without your spirit, we cannot win this battle. And so I pray as we partake in you today, you would fill up our leaky vessels with your Holy Spirit, empowering us to know life is not lived this way. It doesn't bring us joy. It doesn't bring us peace. It doesn't reconcile broken relationships. It shatters and corrupts. So I pray as we partake in your body, I pray that you would strengthen the inner person today, enabling each of us to be the slave of all, to not live entitled lives, to not try to control things except for our response, to be a people overwhelmed with gratitude because we see what you've done for us. To not manipulate or try to get reciprocation for the things that we do, but we work heartily to you. So feed us today, I ask. Let's eat together. We hold the cup, a cup of forgiveness, We hold the cup of the kingdom where the rules have been changed. Where people go before possessions where peace and joy rule. We want to live in that kingdom in Jerusalem 
We want to be lights shining out in a dark world, demonstrating a different way of life. So I pray for myself that you would cleanse me, cure me, that this would be the antidote to me today. Let's drink. Amen. So we'll sing one final song. After that song, you can be dismissed. Go Bengals. And there'll be people up here that would love to pray for you. Nothing too big, nothing too small. It's an opportunity for you to cast all your cares on him. He is our burden bearer. And then we have baptisms. Maybe today is the day. Your Super Bowl. Where you've served Jesus as Savior, but he's not your king. So today is the day you submit to your king who says, repent and be baptized. Okay, I'm being baptized today. So if you're saying, I want to be baptized today, right over here at these double doors will be someone that'd love to talk to you, explain this to you, and we'll baptize you. It'll be a super day for you. Would you stand for this final song?